Go ahead and stretch, uh, stand up for just a moment. And here's what we need to do. I need four volunteers to pass out little booklets of paper to everybody. Come up here. Uh, not all at once. Come on, Brittany. And come on, Matt. And Dan the man. Everybody needs to get one of, let me get an example here. This is just scratch paper that's stapled together. Don't worry too much about what's on the other side. It's just, you know, old, old Tri-Valley scrap paper. Uh, but it's, the point is that it's blank paper, and you all need to have one for an activity we'll be doing at the end of our worship time, or just sermon time. Go ahead and make sure everybody gets one. And uh, just, yeah, take 30 seconds to help each other get them. Say hi to the person near you, and we'll be back in just a moment. Did I give most of them to this side? Sorry, you guys are invited, too, to participate. They'll, they'll make their way around. Brittany might have run out. Anne's got some more over here. Remember that time we had communion and we made sure everybody had all the supplies they needed before we started? This, this is kind of like that. Look out for each other. Also, you're going to need something to write with. Most likely, there's something, a pen or a pencil, in the little bin under the seat in front of you. If not, you may have to tap somebody next to you and say, hey, can I borrow a pen? And that's totally fine. But again, this will be an activity we'll do at the end of the lesson, so if you don't have it right now, you got a little bit of time to make sure to procure one. We have been in a series called The Gospel Plus. Uh, what do we call it? Understanding our good news. We wanted to make sure we understood the gospel because the challenge of sharing the gospel with people depends on our understanding it ourselves and being able to articulate it. And throughout this series, we have been giving you what I call gospel summaries. They're either a scripture or an image or a way to remember, a concise way of communicating the gospel. I think that song we sang earlier one day, living, he loved me, dying, he saved me, buried, he carried my sins far away. That's our message. Rising, he justified freely forever, and we believe one day he is coming. So the songs we've been singing have been reminding us of the gospel story, that we know the story better than we think we do sometimes. But this morning, the gospel summary that I want to focus on for just a moment here uh, comes from a liturgical tradition that we're not as familiar with. It's called the mystery of faith. A lot of worship traditions will end a service by saying, let us together declare the mystery of our faith. Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. They sometimes sing this. Arinda, go ahead and give us a sample of what this sounds like. Christ has Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. If you've ever been to a Catholic or Lutheran or Methodist or Episcopal service, you might have heard this before. This is a long tradition. It goes back over 1,500 years. It's kind of like a concise little bullet points of what we believe. Not, not everything there, but we believe Christ died. We celebrate that. We remind ourselves of that. We believe he actually was dead. He wasn't just tired and was resuscitated, but he was dead, and they checked but that he was risen by the power of God. And we believe that he's going to return. We believe in the coming of Christ and the restoration, uh, the new heavens and the new earth. 
But as we consider this morning what we're going to talk about, which is the gospel plus politics, oh yeah, politics, we're going to get into it. The thing that stands out to me about this gospel summary is not the bullet points and the died and risen and will come again. It's more of the title that we use for Jesus. We said it three times, Christ. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. You may not have realized that that is a political statement, but it is. The word Christ is the Greek word for Messiah, and Messiah is the the Jewish term. It's a political term if there ever was one. The Messiah was the kingly ruler who was anointed by God to lead God's people. Uh, He was an earthly ruler, and it's been one that Israel had been expecting. They had awesome kings like David and Solomon and then some terrible kings. And they're like, when are we going to get a good king? When are we going to get a king that's going to lead us to power and control and victory and lead our nation again? They had been waiting and waiting, and the Messiah was prophesied. There's, there's a leader who's coming. Just wait, just wait, just wait. And then came Jesus, and he became known as the Christ, the Messiah. So when we attach the name Christ to Jesus, It's a political statement. Anytime you say Jesus is Lord, you are automatically saying that Caesar is not Lord. And you could translate Caesar into any political leader of our time. They may have power, they may have got elected, but Jesus is our authority. He is our governor, he is our ruler. We pray that his kingdom will come. We pray that his politics will come. We pray that his government will come above all else. Let's pray together. God, thank you for Jesus and for his kingdom. Thank you for his justice. Thank you for his heart and his compassion. May our hearts be like the heart of Jesus in our worldview, in how we interact with others, in how we bring your kingdom step by step, a little bit at a time. Uh, We pray that your kingdom will come and that your will is done here on earth as it is done in heaven. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So about 2,000 years ago, in Jerusalem, there was a Jewish man who believed very strongly in the concept of the kingdom of God. He didn't think that there should be any other ruler except God alone. And that was a good idea, but he was kind of a nuisance to the people who said, no, we're in charge, both to the Romans, who believed that they were the highest authority, and then also to the governing like Jewish local authorities. They were kind of like, ah, this guy needs to kind of cool it. We're tired of hearing about God being the only true king. This man was famous for cleansing the temple, which meant that he went into the temple, the worship space for the Jewish people in Jerusalem, and he threw out all the foreigners, he threw out all the money changers, he threw out all the Romans, and he said, this is how it's supposed to be. God is our only king. Everybody else can just get out. He was a revolutionary, and he was a rebel, and he led a small band of followers Uh, early on in the early part of the first century. And they were a threat to the Romans and Romans' concept of peace. And so the Romans said, enough of this, and they executed him. This man's name was Judas the Galilean. We all know about Judas the Galilean, right? Who did you think I was talking about? He sounds like somebody else we know, right? Judas the Galilean was a real guy. His zealous exploits are mentioned actually in the New Testament. There's a part in Acts where they reference him. And also uh, his history is chronicled by the historian Flavius Josephus. And you heard the details about his life and you thought, that sounds a lot like the stuff Jesus did, right? 
There is definitely overlap, but uh, Judas the Galilean lived during a time, or was executed during a time when Jesus was still elementary school age. It's okay. Now fast forward 25 years, and now people are starting to see some of the same things again. Kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is among you. Going into the temple, cleansing the temple. God is our only true king. A band of followers, and they're going, wait a minute. (laughs) This looks familiar. And we know what happened to the last guy. So the opponents of Jesus, they said, you know what? This might be our opportunity. This might be our chance to get rid of this particular nuisance once and for all. So listen again to this encounter that Jesus has with some of the religious leaders. This is from Mark chapter 12. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and they said, teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity. And you're not swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Here's their question. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius, the coin that they they used. Let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription Caesar's they replied and Jesus said to them give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's and they were amazed at him the question they wanted to ask the test that they wanted to put Jesus to had to do with the imperial tax now we got to know about the imperial tax is that it wasn't a very large tax it was kind of small but it was like Judas the Galilean it was a nuisance it was annoying. It was a tax only for Jewish people for the privilege of living in the land that is now occupied by people who are in charge of you. Your own land. You used to have this land, but now we have it, and you know what? We're going to have to charge you for it. Kind of like if you, one day you're in your house and someone barges in and says, nope, I live here now. This is my house. You can stay, but you have to pitch in for groceries and help me out every once in a while. How would you feel if somebody did that to you? Not very excited, I would imagine, And that's how the Jewish people felt during this time. The imperial tax was annoying, but they had to pay it. And the other thing you need to know about the imperial tax is that this was Judas the Galilean's main platform. Don't pay the imperial tax. It's dumb. It's unfair. It's insulting. Jewish people, rise up. Don't pay the tax. But what happened? The Romans said, well, you're going to talk like that. We're going to get rid of you. And that's exactly what they did. So, now, fast forward to the time of Jesus. The leaders say, ah, we know how we can trap Jesus. We'll bait him into sounding like Judas the Galilean. So we're going to ask him the question. Jesus, what do you think about the imperial tax? Are you team pay the tax or are you team don't pay the tax? Is it option A or is it option B, are you this? Are you that? Are you for us? Are you against us? Should we execute you or should we let you be? That line of questioning may sound familiar to us when it comes to our own political conversations. Are you this side or are you this side? Are you with us? Are you against us? Do you agree with us or do we have to write you off and be done with you once and for all? It's a litmus test. We ask questions sometimes just to find out where people stand so we know which categories we can put them in. These are often the only choices we give to people in political conversations. 
for people who have disagreements with us. Are you here? Are you here? Are you with me? Or are you with them? And I'm kind of surprised at how often and how quickly I see Christians get swept up in this worldly perspective about politics and political issues without even realizing it. The gospel perspective is different. An attitude that looks like the attitude of Jesus is often lacking whenever the topic of politics comes up. Or whenever there's an opportunity for us to say, oh yeah, but you know what I heard, and oh yeah, but you know what I think, and oh, here's what we have to do so that they, etc. The world tells us we should talk like that. Either this or this. You have two choices. You're A or you're B and you're not anything else. We're going to love one and we're going to hate the other and you should too. You may have noticed this. There's very little room for dialogue or nuance. And even if you get the chance to talk about it, anxieties get high really, really fast. And things tend to spiral out of control. They're not very fruitful. There's a Christian theologian named Miroslav Volf. And he said that in our world today, someone who disagrees with me went from being an opponent to be beaten to being an enemy to be eliminated. We're not just trying to make a point anymore. We're not just trying to win an argument or present the best facts. Our goal is to eliminate people who are different and who disagree with us, to shame them, to deliver the death blow, to get rid of them once and for all. And as you may know, this is not the way of Jesus. <laughs> Jesus didn't say do that. Jesus' reply in this story recognizes the question that he's asked for the trap that it is, and it demonstrates wisdom and creativity. Let's look at Jesus' response again. He says, all right, are you with us? Are you against us? Pay the tax? Ah, ah, what? What's it going to be? Jesus says, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God's. Hmm. Doesn't give them the answer they're looking for. Doesn't kind of fall into the trap of being one or the other. He doesn't say, don't pay the tax. He's not Judas the Galilean. Viva la revolucion! Yeah, I'm going to sign up to get crucified, which he was a little bit later on that same week. But Jesus also didn't say that he supported it. He didn't say he was in favor of it. He didn't say it was right. This may seem a little frustrating to you. I think nowadays we are used to seeing politicians practice the art of spin, you know, like, here's the question. We want an answer from you. And they go, oh, blah, 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 and they don't answer it, or they'll deflect, or they'll speak and wonder what was even said by the end of that. That's not what Jesus is doing. He's not doing that. And the reason we know that is because the people asking the question of him aren't frustrated by his answer. They're not enraged by his answer. What did it say that they were? They were amazed. Wow, this has happened more than once the time of Jesus. He teaches with wisdom, and they're like, oh, it's wisdom. This isn't earthly wisdom. He didn't learn this from a rabbi. He didn't pick this up just in casual society. This, this is wisdom that is otherworldly. This is, as James calls it, the wisdom that comes from heaven. I think Christians need to get better at practicing this wisdom, giving wise answers that won't fall into the traps that a lot of political debates will draw us into. I heard a story about a Christian minister one time who was in a public setting, and somebody raised their hand in front of everybody and said, do you support gay marriage? We want an answer. And his answer was, I'm not going to answer that right now. I'm not going to answer that. I'm not going to respond to that here. And he even said this, because the reason you're asking this is not because you want to find out what I believe, and it's not because you're interested in how my faith informs my views. 
You're asking because you want to know what category to put me in. You're asking because you want to decide whether or not you should keep listening to me or whether or not you should get in your car and go home. It's a litmus test for you. And it wasn't a deflection. It wasn't a like, let's not talk about that. He even said, we can talk about this later. I would love to have this discussion with you. I would love to hear your story and have you hear some of my story. But right now and right here, we're not going to do it. In other words, he was saying, why are you trying to trap me? I think wise Christians need to get better at seeing the heart of the person behind the question or the issue. And not just to unmask potential traps or, uh, you know, to find out the the tricks that people are doing or to say, ah, you're trying to be tricky because that's another way of categorizing people. But doing it from a place of love and concern for the person who's doing the asking. That's the way of Jesus. Getting to the heart of what is the real issue? What is the real concern here? We often don't even think that far. I was having a conversation with an older couple a couple years back. This was during the time of COVID when Everything was political, and everybody had an opinion, and they were happy to share their opinions with you. I was listening to an opinion of this couple, and they were very, very passionate. They were quoting a lot of articles that I hadn't read. They were sharing their viewpoint, and it was just, it was very, like, high stress. And I, I was listening, and I realized, like, I don't know, I don't think I agree with everything that you're saying. I don't even understand a lot of the stuff that you're saying, and I, I don't really even like the way that you're presenting it. It's kind of off-putting to me. But I asked them a question. What is it that you're afraid will happen? All this information, all this detail, all of this, like, we've got to do this or we can't let this. I was like, what are you you afraid of? What's the the end game? What is the concern that if this happens, then this is going to happen? It was kind of my way of saying, well, I don't really particularly care about all the things that you care about as much as you do. I do care about you. To think about that. Maybe, maybe that's the homework for this week. In a conversation, try to get to the heart of it. Like, what, what, what is it you're scared of? What is it you're afraid of losing? Let's talk about that. You'll hear what's on somebody's heart that way. They won't just be somebody to go, oh, I sort you over here, or oh, I sort you over here with me. I think that's, that's a gospel way of encountering disagreements. Jesus says, give to God what is God's. Give back to Caesar. If he wants his picture back, give him his picture back. But give to God what is God's. That's another way of saying, well, what is God's? Everything is God's. This is God's kingdom, and everything is under his umbrella. So give him everything. Give him your allegiance, your love, your obedience, your praise, your worship. Give him what he deserves and is worthy of receiving. He says, you can still obey God even while Caesar's minting money with his own face on it and asking for it back, sure, you can have it back. That's okay. He's reminding us that you can still obey God, even if the people who are in charge of our towns and our cities and our governments and our countries do not govern from Christian values. That may be the part that's hard for some of us to hear. I know a lot of us have memories of a time that was not too long ago. You can think back in your past and go like, man, we could trust our leaders. Or man, you would assume that somebody had some kind of biblical grounding for how they're going to govern and policies are going to be created and they're going to be just and they're going to be fair and they're not going to be slimy and they're not going to be self-serving. We had that and we kind of lost it. And you're going, ah, I just want to get that back. But it seems like we're getting farther and farther away from it. 
Anybody? Is that head nod? Does that sound familiar? Or did I just make that up? Maybe. Maybe so. Feels like our control is slipping away when an election doesn't go the way that we hoped, or when our horse doesn't come in first. But here's some good news. In the time of Jesus, God's people in Jerusalem had been under occupation by some bigger and stronger and certainly a less God-honoring nation of some or another for the last 600 years. They got really used to not being in power, not being in control. They had this long history of feeling powerless, and they still, they were like, we want that control, we want that power back. When someone like Judas the Galilean comes in, they're like, is this, is this it? Is this the time that we finally get to be on top again? You guys killed? No, not necessarily. That's got to be hard. They got used to it, but they never got okay with it. But I want you to listen to what God calls his people to do in times when they are the religious or the political minority. This comes from early on in the time of the exile. God speaks through the prophet Jeremiah, and he says this. This is Jeremiah 29. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. In other words, when you went from having power to having no power. Here's what you should do when you get there. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. And also, seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Again, that might be disappointing to hear as well. Hey, that's not a very good strategy for getting our power back. God says, you know what? Live among the people. Shine your light even if it's a small light. Pray for the prosperity of the city. There's definitely a place for lament and cries for God's people to be in positions of power to direct the community in God's ways. But when that doesn't happen, seek the peace and the prosperity of the city. Settle down. Plant gardens. Live among the people of the land where you might be the odd one out. I shared this quote with you when we were studying Revelation, but it's been such an encouragement to me over the last few months. Uh, the kingdom of God is never in trouble. Remember me saying that? The kingdom of God is never in trouble. The kingdom of the United States might be in trouble. The kingdom of Tri-Valley may experience hard times. The kingdom of Jacob may be in trouble from time to time, but the kingdom of God is never in trouble. You guys might remember a young couple that used to worship with us uh, for a minute a few years back named Shane and Amanda Nod your head if that sounds familiar. They were from China, and they, they came here once, but then they got transferred. Like, Amanda had to go do a, a PhD program in Michigan, so we only got to know them for a little while. But while they were here, I got to hear Amanda's story about how she became a follower of Jesus in China. Uh, when she was younger, she was working in an office. It was this big, empty room, or empty room, big room full of cubicles, like a big office complex kind of thing. And this is during a time and a place in China where Christianity was not tolerated. It was outlawed. You weren't allowed to have a church that wasn't sanctioned by the government. You weren't allowed to read a Bible on your own. You're not allowed to talk about Jesus. And she said in her office, there was this woman who had a Bible on her desk, and that was it. And she noticed. And it was risky to have a Bible on your desk 
at that time. But Amanda had the opportunity to ask the woman about the Bible on her desk. And the woman, who, like I said, it was risky for her to have the Bible on her desk. It was even more risky for her to tell Amanda about Jesus, but that's exactly what she did. She told Amanda the good news. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he has died, that he is risen, and that he will come again. Amanda became a believer because of the woman sharing Jesus with her. Even in a place where the gospel was not respected or embraced or even tolerated, the kingdom of God is never in trouble. I want you to do a quick heart check with me now. Think about your conversations with people with differing viewpoints. Think about the things that you type in all caps on social media and the things that get you fired up. And think about if this was your filter for interactions with everybody at all times. The scripture that I'm going to put up here, this comes from uh, this is advice that Paul writes to Timothy, a young minister in a young church in Ephesus. He says, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Think about that for a moment. If you filtered every comment, every attitude, every judgment or every suspension of judgment through this command to pursue righteousness, pursue faith, pursue love, and pursue peace, how would your interactions be different? Now here comes the real challenge, the part that might poke you a little bit. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments. I'm glad my kids aren't here because stupid is a bad word in our house. And if they found out that stupid was in the Bible, they would start using it more often. <laughs> have nothing to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to other Christians. Is that what it says? The Lord's servant must be kind to the people who are like them. Is that what it says? Kind to everyone. Able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed. Now here's the part you may have been waiting for. Because you're like, Jacob, are you saying do nothing? I'm not saying do nothing. I'm not saying don't be involved in politics. I'm not saying don't care, don't be active, don't be passionate, don't share your views. Do those things, but here's your filter. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the what? The trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. What if that was your filter? What if you wrote that on your wall? The first thing you saw when you got out of bed in the morning is, ah, oh, pursue righteousness. Yeah, righteousness, love, peace, not quarrelsome, not resentful, speaking gently. Again, not being, not, I'm not saying be silent or complacent, but no. Speak words of truth about what you believe, but do it gently. A big question that I have for a lot of American Christians is, can we just be less anxious about anything, about everything? <laughs> can we tone it down? I will admit that I probably could stand to be more tuned in with what's going on, to be more active in local and national politics, but I'm really amazed at how many Christians seem to think that the success or the failure of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, they think that it depends on the outcome of the next election. It does not. We're talking about God here, the God who slept in the boat during a storm, 
The God who said, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed. Indeed, only one thing. This is the God who said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have what? Overcome the world. This is God's kingdom we're talking about here. The kingdom of God is never in trouble. So give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. But give to God what is God's. What does it mean today to give back to Caesar what is Caesar? Jesus said if he wants his picture back, if he thinks he's the man, and he's like, hey, I gave this to you, but now I need it back. I'm in charge. Let him have it. You don't need it in your life anyway. It's going to become an idol. Get rid of it. I've been thinking this week about all the different things that sometimes the politics that we get sucked into, the traps of dichotomous thinking, it's this or that, or you're this or you're that, or ah, and the anxiety level's going up. It just seems like a trap. It seems like something that if we hold on to, it's going to eat us alive and make us less like Jesus and more like something that we don't want to be. So I was thinking about all the different things. And I want us to, this is what the pads of paper are for. So get your pad of paper and something to write with handy. And this is what we're going to do. I'm going to name several things that I've seen American politics generate. Some of the negative things. There's positive side too, yes, all of that, but we're focusing on the negative. Sometimes it breeds fear and it breeds polarization and it breeds arrogance and pride, celebrity worship. We fall into the trap of clickbait. If you don't know what that is, ask somebody near you afterward. It makes us catastrophize. It makes us anxious. It makes us hate. It makes us suspicious. It can make us slanderous and scornful of others, of brothers and sisters of God's children that we should be loving instead and gentle and kind and loving to everyone. So all those things that it can generate that are tempting for us, I want us to throw that back this morning. That's what this exercise is going to do. So in a moment, I'm going to play a song. And on the screen, you'll see uh, some of the names of these things, uh, fear and arrogance and polarization. And what I want you to do is when that thing is named, I want you to write it down on the top sheet of your paper. Uh, And then I want you to rip it out of your sheet. And I want you to crumple it up into a ball. And I want you to throw it as far from yourself as you can. Yes, by the end of this, there's going to be balls of paper all over the ground. But that's good. It's better that they're on the ground than in your heart. Make sense what I want you to do? Okay, Miss Arinda, if you could go ahead and cue that video. Let's get rid of these things. Send it back. I want to do this too. Where's my pen? One day when heaven was filled with his praises, one day when sin was as black as could be, Jesus came forth to be born of a virgin. He dwelt among men. My example is he. One day they led him up Calvary's mountain. One day they nailed him to die on a tree. Suffering anguish, despised and rejected. Bearing our sins, my Redeemer is he. The hands and healed nations stretched out on a tree. Took the nails for me Living he loved me Dying he saved me 
Far away, rising, he justified. 